This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's episode, I am excited to welcome David Lopez, the co-founder and CEO of Gritly, which is a hiring platform designed to help connect diverse job-seeking candidates with growing tech companies. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, Les. How's it going? Appreciate it's the opportunity. Going, yeah, it's going great. I'm super excited to have you. I've heard so many great things uh, about you. I think uh, initially uh, when you when you joined Techstars in the 2023 cohort, but this is the first time we've met, so I'm so excited to feature you on Found of the Rockies. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I, the Rocky Mountain ecosystem matters a lot to me. And so to contribute to it um, is exciting. And to be able to get the word out, um, you know, especially today is is most enticing. So I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, let's dive right in. I know, by the way, I know you're a proud CU, uh, CU grad. Um, I definitely want to talk about that. But why don't you start out? Take us back even a little bit further. Tell us a, a little bit about uh, who you are, where you came from, where you grew up, and uh, kind of what what led you to uh, to where, where you're at now. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I, I think I come from a, an underserved background is is really what we classify that as. But you know, to be specific, um, I'm a Colorado native, right? And and I'm the oldest of my siblings. But my mom had me when she was 17, and so you know, when you think about that, coming from a low income single parent household, there were a lot of challenges then that, you know, we were forced to overcome, right? And, but thinking through more specifically, you know, government assistance programs, you name it, we are on it. And, you know, from, from an early age, I had this fire in my belly that I needed to be able to help and contribute some way, somehow, right? Where I, I really give a lot of kudos to my mom because she was really great at keeping me focused on what was happening inside the classroom versus what was happening outside our front door and in our communities with, you know, unfortunately, a lot of my friends, family and colleagues were involved with a lot of drugs, gangs, violence, um, at, at which point, you know, my my mom had three younger brothers who were seven, eight and nine years older than me that I looked to as kind of father figure slash big brother. Um, but the one of the main kind of pivotal parts in my life came when I was about 12. And like I said, I was very close to, you know, my uncles, my mom came in and said, you know, hey, no more. You can no longer be around them. I'm going to, you know, kind of cut you off from them on my behalf because I don't want you to go down the path that they were going down. And, you know, for me at that point in time, that was really my first heartbreak. I didn't really understand the why, the how and everything that was coming into it. But you fast forward to today. And unfortunately, all three of my uncles are currently incarcerated for drug related charges. And so I say that to say that, you know, my, my mom really helped me change the trajectory of my life, at which point. I was around everything that they were doing. To me, that was family, right? And and the 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 things that they were doing were, were not great. And ultimately what it was, was I learned how to hustle from them. But at that point in time, rather than going in and starting to hustle drugs, my mom kept my focus and I started to learn how to hustle school. And it was at that point where I realized I was able to kind of my the first thing I ever hacked was was the education system. I learned the importance of working working smarter and not harder in that, you know, I was able to go out and get the grades that I wanted to and, and do the extracurriculars and really set myself up for success with this thought that I just wanted to be the boss. 
right? I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs. I'm the first in my family to graduate high school. And so for me, the word entrepreneurship wasn't introduced to me where with true meaning until I was a junior in high school, at which point I'd already started my own business and I was my own boss without even realizing I was an entrepreneur at the same time. Wow. And so for, for me growing up and, you know, having lack of access, I needed to work at a young age. And so I, my first job was at Panda Express. I lasted about six weeks there because that was when I realized I don't want to work for anyone else. I don't like being on anyone else's schedule. And so one day I just made the decision on my own. I decided to quit and very grateful for my mom. I didn't run anything by her. I didn't tell her that this was my plan. I was just fed up and over it. And I'm grateful for her understanding. And she said, look, you know, hey, that's fine, but you still need to be able to make some money somehow. Your grades are good. Why don't you try being a tutor? And it was at that point in time, I was like, okay, well, yeah, fine. But like, what's in it for me? And then she, you know, pulled up some uh, comparables and said, I can make $20 an hour in high school. At that point, I was all in, selfishly all in for the money, right? And so I was, I was very money driven coming from that, the background that we didn't have much, but being a tutor allowed me to collect what I like to call my first emotional paycheck. Meaning I was working with a number of my students who were struggling going through, you know, having multiple tutors, things like that. But we started to see real growth and real impact. And I credit that to having six younger siblings. I know how to speak the language of kids of all ages. And I leaned into that where we started to drive real impact. And we started to see that the the students I was working with were growing and they were achieving their milestones that we were much, you know, much further ahead in the game, at which point I became addicted to that. The money was great. But to know that I was driving real impact in in these kids was something that was really exciting for me. And so I leaned all into that. And that was really my first entrepreneurial endeavor um, that really set me up on this path to say, I'm going to go off and set myself up for a career where I'm building businesses. After that moved, you know, was fortunate. I the only reason I was able to go to CU was I earned a full ride scholarship. And if I didn't earn that full ride, there was, you know, a very low likelihood of me being able to go out and take on the debt that would have that would have come with going after my degree. And so, you know, I, I look at that moment as I was trying to make the most of the opportunity I was able to. And so going into college. This wasn't about I'm going to go and I'm going to find myself or I'm going to go and I'm going to have fun. And I'm going to it was literally about I'm going to go and I'm going to get a job because that's what I'm told. Right. Is you if you go to college and you have a degree, there's more money to be made than if you don't. And so in my head, that's all I was there for. And I had a really transformational experience in the summer leading up into going into college where I was doing some volunteer work for a a low income school in Denver, um, you know, really just facilitating working with the kids in an after school program where at that point in time, I ran them through a four story kind of life cycle of what my life is going into and how I want their life to be similar in that step one, graduate high school, step two, graduate college. Step three for me was I'm going to go to Wall Street because step four is I want to open up my own hedge fund because in my head, again, I'm thinking back about my my drive for money. If I can go in to be a hedge fund, there's one of two ways to be a billionaire in my head. You start a business or you run a hedge fund. And so it was at that point in time, I wanted to go down that route and get into finance. And I shared that with the students. And that was really where the power of network was introduced to me. At which point the teacher I was working with was somebody I was very close to. She was older, retired teacher, was in Denver her whole life and had mentioned to me, hey, actually, my nephew is in hedge funds. 
uh, and I'd be happy to bring you some information. And that point, everything clicked for me. It was like, wow, can I get, you know, a two minute phone call with this person? Or can I get an email? Or is there anything out there that I could tap into? Because that's my dream. And I didn't think I, those people existed until I got to Wall Street, right? So I, I had a lot of cloud, cloud in, in my, my future pathway, but I knew I wanted to chat with him. And the next day, we show up and she brings me a cover for uh, she brings me a Forbes magazine with her nephew on the cover with her nephew being Robert F. Smith, chairman and president over at Vista Private Equity, um, one of the most active private equity funds in, in technology in 2023. Right. And for a long time, it was Did you then, have any idea who it was going to be or was that a was that no a- idea? I, I, I didn't know he ran the hedge fund. I just thought wow. maybe he worked there was an analyst. And yeah. so. A few weeks pass by and I get invited to their family reunion and I have the the fortunate possibility of sharing a steak lunch with Mr. Smith, at which point he talked to me about everything that they're doing is really going back into data and data being this fourth industrial revolution. And that's everything that they're leveraging. I was there with him. I heard it from him. Data is power. That's all I needed. At that point in time, I left that that lunch, that event, and I went all in on technology and startups. And I knew, even though I didn't have the problem I was going to solve, I knew I was going to break into technology and start. I started to, at a high level, teach myself how to code before I got into school. And then I got to school and it was a culture shock like no other. I've grown up in Colorado my whole life. Boulder is 30 minutes away from me at any given point in any house I ever lived in. And yet I felt like I'd moved halfway across the country. And so realizing that. What was the big, what was the big, the shock to to you having lived so close, but then experiencing something that was so different? I, I think it was just a lack of really, I mean, a lack of diversity. And for the first time being around what, you know, we can call wealth coming from where I came from, it was a melting pot on, you know, Everyone was in there and we all shared the same struggle related to finance. And then I get to to campus and I see all these kids having, you know, much more resources than I had was like, whoa, this world exists. And where where is my family in, in that? Right. And so really the way I like to think about it is when I got to campus, I realized three things. One, there weren't a lot of people who looked like me. Two, those who did were oftentimes then going into debt to pursue these degrees and three, at the end of the day, college and university isn't for everybody. And that's okay, right? And it was at that point where I realized that I was barely able to make it. I was closer to a unicorn to come out of my community and go to a big four-year school than I was, you know, everyone else was mostly just getting these low-wage, low-skilled jobs where they would go direct to workforce and, you know, keep the, their families in these cycles of, uh, you know, generational poverty because they're not able to take that next step. And so I, I realized, okay, well... If I'm going to have an impact from my community, maybe it's not to get more of them to go to college, but maybe it's more of them to get into the roles that you can get that don't require a degree. Mm-hmm. And so we started to think, what does this look like? How do we put it all together? Um, you know, we, we had a few other entrepreneurial ideas that would come out around how do we support students and how do we support really startups and getting access to talent? And so that was where. Our, our work and workforce development really started was on campus, at which point we went to a number of employers who, you know, everyone at that point in time was hiring entry level sales reps, right? Everyone is, is growing and I'm, I'm excited by that. I want to be in sales. 
But then I realized that in the entire business school, there was only one course taught in sales, not a certification, not a minor, not a degree, one course. One course. What was it? What was it called? <laughs> that, that's a good Nails question. 101. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was very, it was very high level such as that. Yeah. It was, okay. it was kind of one and done trying, you know, explain the role. But ultimately what I'm seeing though, was all my colleagues in undergrad that got their degree in marketing or finance or operations were getting these entry level sales roles. And so I can, I'm smart enough to say, maybe you took that course. Maybe you didn't. What are you doing in the role? And actually come to find out you don't use a lot of what you learned in college in that role. And so my co-founder and I, we got together and we said, look, like we have to understand from a deep level what success looks like and see what we can learn from that and see if we can start to bring some people in. And at which point we got together with about 10 high growth technology B2B SaaS companies that were hiring a lot of our, a lot of our colleagues in undergrad and asked them, what is the number one thing you need to see from someone if you're going to hire them and they don't have a college degree? And time and time again, the most common response was grit, the ability to overcome adversity, resiliency, right? So one that's you were like, you were like, yeah, the stuff that I'm made of. So <laughs> you're exactly start, by the way, I, by the way, just to take a pause, I got to say like the origin, your origin story leading up to this inspiration We've never heard anything like it on Found in the Rockies. We've recorded over 50 episodes. It's incredible. And I really want to thank you. I know, you know, you were you were super just transparent and vulnerable in in what you shared. But um I think it's I think it's it's very inspirational, David. And and I, I thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, of course. I I've I've leaned into the reality that unfortunately there's a lot more people like me that don't have a seat at the tables that I'm at. And so I, I, though, I needed to see somebody like that for me to make that change. Robert F. Smith was that for me, and I hope to one day be that for for other, you know, the future generation of entrepreneurs. So uh, it, it, I, 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 try, I try and lean into it and, and you know, be transparent. Yeah. And I mean, in your conversation, it's so it's so amazingly like ironic, the conversation that you had with him, because it sent you in a completely different direction than I think it sounds like what you expected. But to me, that's that is the that's the essence of of grit right it's like adapting and 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 rolling with the punches and you know i, I also just i want to highlight too because you know what you shared is is really i think an important human especially this time of year like you know, like around thanksgiving and just being thankful like we none of us can choose what circumstances we're born into and and a lot of times even our parents can't do a whole lot to affect the circumstance that they're in when we're born, right? But the one thing all of us can do as human beings or as parents is we can change the direction. You can point your children in a direction and you can shape their future, especially if you instill hustle and grit in them. And it sounds like your mother was an absolute, incredibly self-aware and just amazing force of good for you and in the world. I mean, it's amazing what she did. Absolutely. And eternally grateful, right. And to go off and now it turns into how can we set her up? Right. And, and that's what, you know, that, that, that drive, that engine, it, it's still going right. And, and job's not done. Uh, you know, one of my, yeah. one of my favorite, uh, you know, monologues by Kobe Bryant, where he's talking about being up 2-0 in the finals, so close to winning the championship and he can't smile because job's not done. That's right. I'm in that same boat. Job's not done, right? right? And 
we, we are very bought into, and we can talk more about, you know, what the culture we're building at Gritly. We're very bought into the mission and understanding that everything we're doing is much bigger than ourselves. Yeah. And we're grateful to be the stewards to bring this, this mission and this product to life, but it, it doesn't, you know, come without the, that, that deep understanding that we're, we're very lucky to be in this spot to go off and provide and make things a lot easier for our communities. Um, we could talk more about, you know, how deliberately yeah. we to do that. Well, well, let's take in that direction. I, I kind of, I derail this. You were on a great, I mean, by the way, you're a great storyteller too. So just take it away from here. Um, but you were, we were just getting into the part about uh, this, this essence that was missing and that is the grit. And, and obviously the company's gritly. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, about the specific origin story? And you mentioned your co-founder, maybe tell us a little bit about him or her. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll start with, with Avi. Yeah. My co-founder and CTO who, you know, we, we've gone through a lot of the, the grit together, right. Where, you know, him and I were both, you know, entrepreneurial engaged on campus, showing up to events. And I, I really think that's the, a key differentiator. We were showing up. So if there's five events on campus that week for startups and entrepreneurship, we were at all of them. There was one that week we were at it, you know, and so for us, we just kept seeing each other and and kept, you know, uh, connecting and networking and understanding that, you know, Avi and I were were cut from the same cloth, even though we have different backgrounds. And Avi, you know, uh, was an international student from India studying at CU and coming from a technical background, we we had the same DNA or the same heartbeat we like to talk about where we knew we wanted to contribute to a mission that was bigger than ourselves and we knew that we could do a little bit without software but we could do so much more with it and that's where you know we we really decided to lean in you know i'd mentioned i I started to teach myself how to code we realized the importance of specialization and and understanding that we can become a dynamic duo where he runs all things engineering and from a tech standpoint and i'm all things sales I don't want to go and be sales and also try and be teaching myself how to code and then not be valuable to him and not be valuable to any of the other stakeholders. And so we made that decision pretty early on into our working relationship, at which point it was, let's talk to some of these employers and let's see if there's anything there, right? Almost in this lens of, can we improve ourselves out of going out and starting this company? Is it that the solutions are out there, that our assumptions are that wrong, that we don't have to waste time and energy to go and build a solution for a problem that doesn't exist? Thankfully, though, that wasn't the case. And we found actually a, a massive problem that, you know, was was enticing enough for us to sink our teeth into, which really started off on that lens of what what do the employers need? Grit. Also, us being able to say, OK, well, that's everything we have back home, but we're smart enough to know that that's not it. Give me everything else that matters to you from a technical standpoint, where if I were to check every single box off that you gave me, you would have no reason not to hire this person, right? Because the only thing they'd be missing is a degree, right? And so at that point, we really held the the employer's feet to the fire to understand and ultimately create what, what would become a tech sales boot camp. So that's greatly 1.0 in us just throwing something out and seeing what sticks was, how do we create curriculum and introduce, right? Introduce and expose a community that doesn't know what B2B SaaS is, doesn't know what technology or how deep technology goes into, and how do we lean on their existing transferable skills, give them access to what we like to call no BS curriculum in that if it's not going to lead to the success in the role, we're not going to teach it. And ultimately connect you directly with employers who help build the curriculum and so who are bought in to, to hire you. We ran that program 
I was going to say, it sounds like almost a reinvent of the secondary education system or what should be, you know, what should be thought about more, uh, more directly in some, some circles, uh, perhaps. Right. Right. Because we get, we, I feel like we've gotten a little lazy maybe, um, uh, or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this enough, but it's like, why, why is it that we think that a degree serves as like a surrogate for really the things underneath that the boxes to your point that actually need to get checked. It's like, oh, they got a degree. They're good. But no, 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 maybe not. Right. Yep. So, so that, that premise is what has gotten us to today where we're a data-driven learning company. Right. And, but I'm talking about this tech sales bootcamp. Right. And so how do we get there is, is, you know, can be summarized in one. So we launched the program. We were focused on women, minorities, veterans, and justice involved individuals, what can be argued as the riskiest population to be hiring from, um, which led to some pretty com- uh, pretty interesting conversations with employers when understanding what kind of talent we were giving them access to. And so through that, though, we launched the programs and we saw people coming through and doubling and tripling their incomes, getting access to full benefits for the first time and getting off of government assistance programs. And so that's when we knew, OK, we're on to something. But when we knew we had opportunity for massive scale was when Avi and I, we were still in undergrad running this this boot camp, and we started getting our students hired faster for the same jobs that our colleagues in undergrad were competing for. And so that's when it was, okay, we're really diminishing the value of this degree, but we're doing it for one subsect of sales with this niche, uh, you know, group of companies focused in, you know, early stage, anywhere from series A to series C startups. What does this look like at a much bigger picture? And what are the other roles that matter most? And so we had this whole grand vision on, we started in tech sales and we wanted to get into recruitment and customer success and all of that, which was very human capital intensive. So understanding that there is a human capital intensive component to this, also understanding that once we started to grow our employer network, we then began to get met with employers saying, well, who is Gritly? And why do I care about this tech sales certification? And it was like, okay, that's fair we don't have the resources to go and build this billion dollar recognizable brand like a university. But if you care about degrees and, you know, colleges and all that, that's fine. We're not the partner for you, but for your sales roles, if you care about people who can cold call prospect and close deals, we're the partner for you full stop. Right. But every conversation started with that uphill battle of who is greatly and why do I care? And so we knew, okay, well, we need to make it less about greatly. We need to make it more about our candidates because our candidates are the ones that are doing the job and that they need to showcase that. And we wanted to put the the agency back into their hands. At the same time, we were looking at how do we, what software do we use to scale? And we're looking at pulling a, you know, off the shelf learning management system similar to higher education for us to use, and we can focus on getting more people hired faster. That's when we realized inherently our desired outcomes are very different than higher education. Going back to a little bit of about what you were talking about around, you know, the getting the degree is one thing, but what does it really mean? And for, for most of those programs, not just higher education, but the, you know, massive open online courses and everything, everything is about completion right? Did you complete? And if you complete, you get the credential degree. What does it mean? Did you finish at the top of your class or did you barely scrape by? Not to say that you're good or bad, you're just different, right? But 
I, as a hiring manager, I need to know what I can expect so we can maintain uh, alignment of expectations. So I don't expect you to come in and make 70 cold calls a day and you're only trained to do 20 or you're not comfortable anything beyond 50, right? And so we need to get deeper into that, at which point we decided, okay, we're going to develop our own learning management system, but we're going to collect important qualitative and quantitative data on performance from day one. So we built a very intensive data infrastructure underneath the learning platform that would allow us to track and really build what we can call a learning and employment record of the future to showcase what these candidates are able to do in a 12-week online program where they're getting hands-on experiences and leveraging actual projects. And, you know, it turned from uh, employers interviewing our candidates and doing the basic tell me about a time when, or talk to me about when, you know, you've sold some, it turns into, well, they can actually go in and listen to somebody's mock sales calls now and understand, oh, Sally's really great at the opening and describing the product, but maybe she struggles a little bit with booking the next call. Well, that's okay because now I know, and now we can have much more of alignment. And so now I know where I can shift my training and onboarding resources. So yes, we're going to hire her faster, but also we're going to get her trained where she is the weakest and she's going to start adding value to our team much faster than trying to level set and give everyone the general training and onboarding that happens. And so that was MVP one. It, we, we put some together, we put it in front of employers, the employers really loved engaging with it. What we did not expect though, um, and, and sorry, the one other thing I want to highlight here that's really important is our best students that came through the Gritly Tech Sales program were getting hired before they finished the program, meaning an employer would come in and engage with them and say, and these individuals, they all were in the backgrounds I mentioned, but they had so many transferable skills, whether they were bartenders or admin assistants or receptionists or they were in the military. There's a ton of transferable skills there. We honed in on them and then made it relevant to sales, at which point an employer will say, hey, you don't need to spend the next four weeks finishing your program. We want you right now. How do we take that moment, not hurt them, right? We don't want to hurt them and say, hey, you didn't complete. Sorry. But you we want the certificate, but you got the job. <laughs> and for us, what mattered more, right? And so that's when we knew it's more about the job than it is about the certification. Yeah. That's what fueled this drive to develop the data infrastructure and produce what we were calling these learning and employment records for hiring managers. And, and it's really about leveraging that data. And really the final piece that catches us all the way up was the, what we did not expect was other organizations, other role specific training programs. We were doing tech sales, these other programs, what can be classified as our competition came to us and said, Hey, we're having some of the same issues with gaining new employers and we need some software to scale. Can we utilize your platform? And so at that point, we looked at what we were doing and realized we have a much bigger opportunity to go after impact, get more people hired, and also $100 million in revenue if we go from being one player in the vocational training space to commercializing the product we built for ourselves and really bringing to market what is a first-of-its-kind upskilling management system built for the future of skills-based training and hiring. And that is where, you know, we've been heads down developing our product, at which point, you know, we're truly understanding from a, a granular level when a hiring manager says we need to have you to have X, Y and Z skills at what level they expect to have those skills at and making sure that there is an alignment on the students as well as the program partners that are on our platform to ensure that. We're getting more people hired faster through role specific training, but more importantly, the ecosystem 
that lives there that it takes for somebody to go from raising their hand saying I, I lost my job and I need help through them getting that new upskilling uh, opportunity all the way through signing the job offer and making sure that each stakeholder has a harmonious relationship in one place because unfortunately today they don't have communication they're not sharing data they're definitely not collecting and sharing performance data but also what happens to the outcomes where do these folks end up and how do we know that what our program is doing is working, right? And so making sure that we double verify and are collecting the outcomes data, there's a lot of folks specifically um, within government as well as the nonprofit space that are interested in owning and being able to oversee the outcomes of really the, the candidates and, and folks that they're working with on a daily basis who then are going through workforce development and are finding new jobs, making livable wages. Yeah, man. I mean... David, such an incredible product vision and, and just evolution of how this has all come to be. I mean, uh, what uh, and and you 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 tell the story great, but it's like it seems like it was all all golden. Like any challenges, any any setbacks or hardships or, or all all gravy. No, it's it's been very difficult. Um, Tell us about it. Tell us about like what you've learned and maybe like what advice you have to other founders. I mean, I I also think you're one of the first guests that we've had on the show that started. I mean, this started while you were at CU, Mm -hmm. correct? Still a student, yeah. So uh, maybe some of the challenges as a first time founder still pursuing, you know, in the midst of your undergrad, starting a company. Yeah, I I think you know it, it really for us became quite evident very early on that we needed to drop our egos, right? I, I had this idea of what what I wanted to bring to the world and we've done a version of that. But if, if I had kept my ego involved, we probably, you know, would have been left by a hundred miles by now, you know? And, and I say that to say, when the moment we dropped our egos, we picked up our listening ears, right? And and to, to keep it high level, but really for us was understanding who are the most important stakeholders and how do we build for them, right? Because our, our, our assumptions are great, but we want to prove our assumptions wrong or they need to be, it's either like it needs to be a hell yes or a hell no, right? And so to make sure that we're clear both as a team, but also for sitting down and understanding our users, we, we realize that they're going to be our guiding light. Mm-hmm. Also, at the same time, though, trying to make sure we have capital, right? I'm living off my scholarship money. You know, Avi is doing a lot of the same. And we're trying to figure out, hey, we're going to graduate soon. What does this look like? And can we go off and can we take that leap? And so that's also when we started to go out and build relationships with a number of you know, folks in, in the Rocky Mountain region, right? Like I mentioned, Colorado means a lot to me. And, and I think that we have a very empowering ecosystem of founders, builders, operators, investors of the like that were willing to come in and, and help me understand what it takes to raise capital to, to grow the business, right? We started off as, is this going to work out? And then, oh, wait, that's cool that we can make some money too. And then actually, I think we can make a quite a bit of a lot of money. And then wait, actually, now we got to do all these other things like taxes and, you know, accounting and okay, well, so that that real time entrepreneurship wasn't us just kind of hoping for the best. We had a set team of, of advisors who would then transfer into becoming our first angel investors that would allow me to focus on keeping the main thing, the main thing, which was launching our product and getting into the hands of users, which for me is always going to be my first word of advice for new founders is 
one, you don't have a business until someone takes their wallet out and gives you money, right? Everything is an idea up until that point. But once that happens, you want to get that feedback and you want to run with it. That, you know, if they give you $5, that's great. But the feedback they give you might as well be worth its weight in gold, right? You want them to see it, touch it, feel it, break it, and then see how they would improve it and build for them. There was a point where we started to build for investors because we were so cash trapped that we thought, well, let's just go please the investors and let's get what we need so we can go back and build build this build division, right? And that was massive mistake on my end. I wasted nothing but my own time and resources in, in that understanding where I'm building this pretty slide deck that, you know, is amazing. And it has, um, you know, all the slides that I've been told. Form a financial model that the investor all, wants all to the see. Things, right. And the, the hockey stick growth and all of that. And I'm over here trying to do that. And then we're getting all this massive feedback from our users. And I start to bring that up in these calls. And that's when the investors are like, I don't care about all this stuff. Tell me about what your users are saying. Tell me about, you know, what that, what that dynamic is. And that's when we realized this isn't about, you know, also too, I think understanding the, where I come from, it's hard to, to raise your hand and ask for help. Right. And that's the relationship I had with money that was inherent in my DNA that I had to go off and change that where actually investors money is, is, is just the wood I need to build my house. And thankfully, there's plenty of forest around in our Rocky Mountain region that I have options. And because I have options, whoever does have the opportunity to join, they're lucky that they can be a part of our journey, right? And so that was a a major shift for me that I went through, at which point it then just became about how can we be the best, provide the most value to our customers and make sure we keep listening to them and report back that to investors was made our fundraising journey a lot easier but also leveraging and understanding how we scale this. That was by far and large, which if you asked me 18 months ago, would we be building a data-driven learning and education platform? I probably would have said no way. But for us to keep our ears to the market and understand that that's where we need to be pulled, I feel very lucky to be at the forefront of knowing that our bigger mission is to get more people hired faster. Mm -hmm. But we know that we're contributing to the ecosystem and we know that it's also still incredibly hard to fundraise as first-time founder, diverse founder, not coming from you know the ability to raise your friends and family round. That's all very real still as well. And so unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, I'll, I'll say we've learned how to make a dollar stretch. And what we've done with the limited access to capital we have, I don't know if anyone else in the Bay Area or anyone that's doing the napkin idea is doing anything close to the anything remote to that. Right. And so there's there's days of frustration. And, you know, it once once we work and everyone's going to say, oh, well, now that's what we are saying. Right. Um, is there. But also too, being very, very grateful for the partners that we do have, because I think that there would have been a lot of opportunity for us to maybe take on money that is not good money right? Or can be detrimental to our growth as founders. And so I say that from a place of scarcity, but I also say that in a place of understanding the importance of the relationship in who you have on your cap table. And so, you know, again, thankful to my investors and advisors for making sure I was clear about that from early on for me to say, hey, look, if you have mistakes that you've went through as founders, entrepreneurs, whatever it is, please don't make me have to go through that. 
I, I trust my advisors enough to know that if this is something I can do to avoid a pitfall and, you know, not right now, but in 10 months from now, I'm willing to set that, put that in place because this isn't about being small. This is about operating at massive scale. And so we have to take care of business right now, but also none of that matters if, you know, we can't bring this mission and vision to life to get more people hired. So um, it's, it's absolutely been also challenging to deal with the, externalities of the market, right? I, we, we went through Techstars workforce development. We learned a ton. We were coming off, you know, all, all this great traction and all this excitement. Demo day went amazing. I think we were in diligence with like three or four funds just to wrap up the remaining part of our round. And then SVB failed. And then overnight, everyone was like, hold on, we got to put out these fires and this and that. And, you know, I feel that's really just put a a damper on the entire industry that, okay, well, what happens now? These companies still need to exist. Everything, you know, still needs to happen. Granted, I get that there's definitely been a moving of the goalposts, right? If it was, hey, we're pre-revenue and we want to get in early, it's now we need you at 100K uh, ARR or, you know, whatever it may be. And, we get That's that. right, because because just to, just to remind our viewers uh, or viewers listeners, <laughs> just to remind our listeners, uh, you you were in the 2023 TechStars cohort. When did that cohort end? Was it April or May of 23? Which was a February. few months. Oh, it was February. So it was literally literally as, as SVB melted down. Yep, and and that's what it was like. Everything was fine until that happened, and then everyone that we were talking to was like. Hold on. And so we are weeks into this process, right? Post demo day, yeah. did the follow up, we're in multiple calls. I felt like I was running at full speed. And then it was like, actually, hold on. We're going to introduce you to another market externality outside of the pandemic, right? Outside of all these other uh, phenomenons. We're going to throw one more in there and let's see how you, how you can react, right? And then, but that, that I think is the most important piece of, you know, we, we had our cap table really step up and show up and really, you know, double down on everything that we are doing to get us to this place today that we're not hoping or counting on an investor to save us anymore. Right. And I say anymore, because like I said, we used to have that thought process. Now we're just building a company to add value to our stakeholders. And that's changed the entire dynamic from investors. And quite honestly, as a, as a first time founder, I was a little bit, you know, what do they say? Like drunk off the Kool-Aid of the zero interest rate phenomenon, right? On I'm seeing all these other folks get it. I'm going to come in and get it. And then I never got it. And then for it to see it go away. Wait, so you're just saying investors just care about people who can build good businesses, right? Okay. That's what we've been doing all along. (laughs) I'm going to stop worrying about anything else. I'm just going to keep doing what I need to be doing. And that shift in mindset over the last even seven months um, seven, eight months has been, you know, important, really summing up as keeping the main thing, the main thing yeah. and letting that be our, our core driver. So it's by no means been easy. Um, but when, when the times do get tough, leaning into our grit, right. Part of our DNA, but also, like I said, just everyone that is contributing to the gritly mission understands that we're, this is much bigger than ourselves. And so this hardship now and whatever the last 12 months has been, we know that will pass and it will be something we can look back and say, you know, one, we survived it. And two, look at the impact we've had in regard to bridging America's skills gap, which is actually a national crisis that we're not just quite ready to address yet. Um, and so that's also exciting for us to, to keep looking out into the horizon. 
I want to double click on that that national skills crisis in a bit. But but first, I did want to while we're kind of on the topic of your cap table and investors, you know, you, you shared some great advice there. I want to thank you for the realness of of what you exposed. But why not uh, give a shout out? You do have some great great investors on your cap table. In fact, I think one of them was on the podcast recently. Do you want to give a shout out to any of the, the sort of the great mentors and, and investors that have been helping you along the way here? Yeah, definitely. Want to give a shout out to Danielle Schutz. Um, you know, Danielle Schutz from from NCTF, uh, newly will be rebranded as as Demi Fund. Um, you know, what was somebody that connected with us very early on in our tech sales boot camp, right? But more importantly, she comes from a background like I did, where she overcame the odds. And I have grit. She has grit, right? And so it's almost the takes one to know one. But from that first interaction with her where we shared our stories, it was evident, and this is before she even had a fund, that she needed, she, she, you know, she expressed that she needs to get us funded, right? And she didn't know how or what or how, you know, and it all came together the way it did. But she's been a believer in, in Gritly and our mission since day one, so much so that not only because she truly understands the, the problems that we're going after, but two, she's willing to put her capital behind it. And, you know, I, I think... Working with Danielle and the team at NCTF slash Demi Fund has been instrumental because we love the capital, but we love the support even more. And what I mean by that is they're connecting us with the correct resources, whether that be advisorship, mentorship, access to to customer uh, lists, anything like that. They are who we can count on. You know, we appreciate our angel investors who, you know, are, are more quiet and just bring us the capital. But NCTF and Demi Fund, they're willing to get their hands dirty with us and learn alongside us and understand what we need from a founder perspective. And that is what gives gets us so excited to know that we're working with the right people who understand who we're going to solve for. Yeah. If you are coming from this background where you don't access or interact with middle America who is currently going through not being able to access livable wages and is hitting all the ceilings of their current positions based on their existing skill set and lack of career pathways, how could you understand what we're doing? You couldn't, right? And so that's the enough for me to know we're not the right fit and that's okay. We just need to work with the Danielles of the world who unfortunately there's not a lot, right? But when we do find it, we want to make sure that there is a, a worthwhile capital partnership there because at the end of the day, we're here for impact, but we are a for-profit company driven by, you know, creating generational wealth and creating returns for our investors. Danielle's bought into the best of both worlds, and we know we can do both at Gritly, and we're very intentional about doing that. And so, more than anything, we're a shout out to to Danielle, and you know, more than anything, just want to say we can't wait to continue to prove you right, Danielle. She's incredible. Yeah, that's a that's that's a great great shout out. Um, well, let's get back to uh, the the crisis because it's. I, I think we're all starting to feel it and see it, especially you know those of us that have you know friends and loved ones in in you know in in Middle America and in sort of non coastal non tech hub regions. David, what do we do? Like, what? Give me give me your assessment of what what do we do and how we solve this problem. In short, we collaborate. And, and that's something that's not, that hasn't been done in a long time, right? Like I mentioned, where I come from, it's hard for us to raise our hands and say, hey, I need help, right? We, we have as much grit we have, we also have some pride. And that's okay. That's just who we are, right? And when I say we, this is coming from, you know, lower socioeconomic statuses. And at which point, 
we need to collaborate because there's a number of organizations who do phenomenal work in the kind of zero to one, whether that be a workforce development center at the county level, that be a, a nonprofit at the city level, or that be a, a nonprofit at the national level. There's all these organizations that do a ton of great work about helping people who are raising their hand find the next step. But what happens when that next step is on a completely different platform or costs a bunch of money that no one can pay for or doesn't lead to an outcome? What do we do then, right? Then we look and we find all those great programs that are doing the work, that do have high uh, likelihood of outcomes, that are working directly with employers. And then we go and we find the employers. And as we're finding this ecosystem, this trail, nobody's talking to each other. No one is giving feedback on what actually gets somebody hired because workforce, we can, we can be happy about the work we do all day, but if people aren't getting hired, but they're gaining new skills, is that the win we want in our economy? Is that we have a more skilled workforce that can apply those skills into employment that leads to livable wages? No, right? And so we need to make sure that one, employers aren't left off the totem pole of important stakeholders. And quite honestly, they should be number one, because if we can make it easy for them to hire our candidates, our candidates then have the best experience to go in and find that employment. But also, too, we need to make sure we're rewarding and setting the standard for the best programs that are supporting these folks who are going out of their way and investing a bunch of resources in building brand trust and brand equity. Well, if, once you have that too amongst lower, uh, you know, underserved uh, communities, it's a lot easier for you to speak their language, get in, involved in, in their communities, and start to build a flywheel of, hey, you know, X person did it, I can do it too, right? So we have to start that. In order for us to start that, we want to make it easy for them, make it easy for our candidates to really, and the, the way the candidates can look at Gritley's platform, even though we white label a ton of our uh, a ton of our product for the same reasons of empowering the existing orgs that have brand equity and brand trust is making it so that when they're on our platform, they're logged in, they can go from career discovery to job offer and all of the upskilling that happens in between all in one place. Oh, wow. We need to meet them where they're at and that's not being done. And employers are doing what they can, right? There's a little bit of reliance on the government. Okay, they're not going to move fast. That's okay. What are they going to do? They're getting more and more involved in the recruitment process to understand how do they sift out the good fish and the bad fish, right? And what does that look like? That's very human capital intensive time they're spending, not with trying to understand who their best candidates are. And so there's this entire ecosystem that exists that is not communicating, is not collaborating, that Gritly is building the first of its kind platform to facilitate that and ensure that it's easy to set up these organizations if they don't have workforce development. And it's easy to get folks hired if you can't find access to the right talent. And then it's easy to say, I want to upskill and make more money. Yeah. Wow. It's it's quite a it's quite a challenge, but you've got a great vision for it. And if I were to bet put my money on a horse that could do this, uh you 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 definitely uh have a great vision for how to do it. So and awesome. I'm gonna double down and bet on me too. <laughs> <laughs> good good validation there um i've got two we're just about out of time i have two kind of final questions first um first i'm going to ask you for some advice and specifically so let's let's just kind of lay it out i mean you're a first generation college student you graduated from cu boulder 
Um, you also, as a 23 year old, 23 year old were, uh, as, and, and as a CEO were named one of, uh, 50 recipients of Google's inaugural startups, Latino founders fund, incredible achievement. Congratulations. Um, but what advice would you have to give to other aspiring Latino founders and entrepreneurs? I, I think this, you know, goes into all founders, but also I, I think all folks looking to go and take a risk that they're not comfortable with. Right. And, and I think that goes in there and change your relationship with failure. Right. I, I think, you know, you had mentioned, right. Wow. It sounds all great and everything. And, you know, I can look back and I can think, you know, I've failed so much more than I've had, you know, successes, but in all reality, when I, when, when I say it's a failure, that's a lesson. That's a lesson learned. That's an opportunity for me to not make that mistake again, to get to point A much, that much faster. And I think that a lot of folks in that position who, you know, are trying to be their first in their family to break cycles or to be the, the one that's going to, to change the game for, you know, their bloodline or whatever that may be, you have to know and understand that failure is a part of the game. It's not the end all be all. But how you get up and how you react is going to set up your trajectory. And if you can lean into the opportunity to learn about where you messed up and fix that, that is going to stay with you, whether you're launching an MVP or you're going and selling your first enterprise you know, client and it's much more money than you ever thought you'd be selling deals for and you might not be ready for it. I'm ready for the, the the failure slash the lessons that are going to be brought on. And I know I'm going to make the most of it. And that is this relentless mindset I'm never going to let go of. And I think if more people can change that dynamic with failure, we're going to start to see a lot more innovative solutions, leveraging technology and not that are going to better the lives of Americans and citizens of the world. And I think it, it, it's, it stems there and that will get the creative juices flowing. Such a great reframe and, and such great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Um, last question, kind of like to go personal typically with the last question to kind of end the episode. You, 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 your resume in terms of volunteer work rivals, you know, people in their 80s in terms of their entire lifetime. I mean, you're a volunteer basketball coach, you know, a volunteer with Energize Colorado. Uh, uh, you're a classroom volunteer. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. YMCA. You've done so much volunteer work, but but in particular, I want to I want to hone in on your work with the Precious Child. You're you recently became a board member at that organization, I think, or I, I think I'm going on uh, entering year two there. But okay, yes, yes, definitely new. Um, I'm I'm glad you brought that one up. A Precious Child is is very near and dear to my heart in a number of ways. Love the work that we do today, but actually, my journey with them started close to 12, 13 years ago when, as I mentioned, growing up, you know, coming out of a low income single parent household, my mom was somebody that raised her hand that showed me it's okay to ask for help. And she did just that. And so growing up, we actually accessed a precious child's services for supplying me with a backpack with all the supplies, which is one of my favorite initiatives that's put out of a precious child, um, is, is providing communities with access to resources that they don't have. 
whether that be food, clothing, backpacks, school supplies, right? And so we actually accessed that early on. And I've always remembered them, always stayed in touch with them. And as I've continued on in my career, had an opportunity to to circle up with the founder, thank her, at which point in time, you know, we, we decided it was, um, my voice was was worthwhile to be on the board. Um, and, and at which point, you know, we've been able to contribute and are eager to continue to grow and excel the, the mission. Um, but for me, it's, it's really important that I understand both sides of the table and that we were on one side receiving help and now I get to be on the other side and, and providing some of that assistance. And so um, very, very grateful for those organizations that are out there that are doing that work and, um, you know, take a lot of pride in being able to, to rep, uh, represent a precious child in, in any uh, capacity I can. Amazing work, David. I, and I got to say, uh, you know, that you've been such an amazing guest. Uh, when I think about an entrepreneur's story and journey, you know, there's there's entrepreneurs we want to root for and we want to win. You're definitely one of those. But more so, you're one that I think we know will win. <laughs> Not just that we're rooting for. I mean, it, it's incredible, you know, between grit, hustle, showing up, dropping egos and picking up listening ears, keeping the main thing, the main thing, changing your relationship with failure. I mean, so many incredible life lessons already and you still got a ways to go. You're just getting go. You're just getting started here, right? Oh, oh, we know, um, you know, but more than anything, just very grateful for the the support system we have for, you know, those who are on our cap table. And, you know, rather than waking up and trying to prove, prove folks wrong, I wake up and I try and prove those that believed in me right. And that's why I, I, I know we're going to be okay and we're going to see this through. So um, I really appreciate the opportunity, Les. It was uh, really exciting and energizing to have this conversation. And um, I'm excited to, to see what part two looks like after we go and put some more work in. All right, let's do it. And and just to conclude, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you and more about Gritly online? Yeah, Gritly's website is www.gritly.us and I'm at David Has Grit on all social media. How appropriate. Thanks, David. Thank you, Les. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.